You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, special treat today. We've had quite a focus on community land trusts of recent, and I thought there would be no better than John Emmius Davis. He's the editor of the legendary Community Land Trust Reader, which came out in 2010, which is really the opus of everything to do with CLTs and an integral book to anyone's learnings who's uh, trying to get their head around this. He's an academic who's published countless articles on the topics of CLTs. So, John, what is your elevator pitch when someone asks you what on earth a CLT is? Well, you know, all CLTs are not exactly the same in the United States or in other countries. But most CLTs do share a a set of common characteristics. I think the most simple generic description that most community land trusts here in the United States would agree describes their organizations would be community-led development of permanently affordable housing on community-owned land. Now, of course... Each one of those elements, you know, takes on a number of features. But I think that that's uh, the simple description of a CLT. It's one that really combines three components. It's a distinctive approach to the ownership of real property, the empowerment of place-based communities, and the stewardship of privately owned housing and other buildings. That is a great synopsis of uh, this concept of common ground and establishing that primary principle so that uh, stewardship can occur. Uh, This year, uh, you're celebrating the golden anniversary of new communities and from that, uh, the CLT movement that Ralph Bosodi and many others helped kick off. What have been some of the the key do's and don'ts uh, you've learned over that time in terms of the operation of CLTs? I know that must be a long list, but what would be your top five or six? (laughs) Well, there are, you know, currently about 260 community land trusts in the United States. They're approaching 200 in England a handful in Belgium, it started to spread to France, and of course, in Australia and Canada. So, you know, each country probably could come up with their own list of accomplishments, the things they've done right and the things they've done less well, less right. I think in the United States, if I had to point to, you know, kind of what the do's were, what we've done right is... I think where we've been successful, first and foremost, the organizers of a community land trust have taken the time to build a base of support among the people within the community they're trying to serve. They've done education, organizing, outreach, involvement. And when I say involvement, you know, in creating the organization, uh, they've built a membership base and involve members of the community as well as the people who live on the land trust land in the governance of the organization. I think that's something that has been a lesson, a best practice 
for us is first build your base of support before you build your organization or try to build housing. I think secondly, over a long period of time with a great deal of difficulty, we've managed to win a certain amount of, of acceptance among the people who control the money. That is, for the most part, public officials at the municipal or state level and private bankers. And we've done that by pretty much showing them that the community land trust helps them to promote their interest and their agendas at the same time we're promoting ours. And what I mean by that is with public officials, we've managed to demonstrate that we can keep the housing that the public sector invests in affordable forever. So they're not, you know, seeing their subsidies siphoned off, privatized every time housing sells. For the bankers, we managed to show them that we have the ability to prevent foreclosures. I mean, even at the height of the Great Recession and the mortgage meltdown here in the United States, we had very few foreclosures among CLT homeowners. So it was in the bankers' interest to work in partnership with us. And then I guess, so I don't drone on and on here, I think the the third thing I would point to as something we've done right is that community land trusts have taken advantage of the flexibility, the versatility of the model itself and blending the CLT with other types and tenures of housing and applying it in a variety of uses and buildings. So we haven't concentrated just on one application. You know, anything you can do with land, anything you can build on land, some CLT somewhere has done it. And I think that helps for the proof of concept of this model, that it has a certain versatility, flexibility, that we can apply it in many ways in many different places. Well, John, that's a, a, f- a fantastic roundup. So uh, just reiterating, it's uh, build that community support base really before you uh, kick into action. Prove to public officials that you can retain the benefit of these land rents so that you become financially self-sufficient. And lastly, it seems like uh, there's plenty of flexibility to uh, be as creative as you want under a CLT as long as it's within the bylaws. Now, uh, they're all great concepts, John, but one of the things I've uh, noticed through my study is the social side of community land trust. What are some of the best practices there in terms of maintaining a harmonious community over the long run? Well, you know, again, I think it goes back to the way you start the organization, the way you build the organization. And I think from day one, community land trust try to cultivate a relationship with an informed group of people, an informed neighborhood, so that it's not just this unfamiliar, odd duck uh, model of tenure that's imposed from the outside, imposed from above. So I think the building of community starts with involving the community. Secondly, community land trust develop a relationship with the families, the cooperatives, the small businesses, the community gardeners, 
that make use of the land from day one. So it's very important that the landowner is not seen as a heavy-handed, distant landlord. So it's a marriage of convenience between the community land trust that owns the land and the individual families or businesses or community gardeners, cooperative housing corporations that lease the land. So it can't be this distant (laughs) landlord-tenant relationship or it fails. And then I think finally, for all the efforts that a community land trust makes to support people who live on the land trust land, who use the land trust land, you know, we try to provide supports and opportunities for those folks to get involved in the organization, in the committees, the board, the activities. But a lot of the community building is done by the people themselves. You know, there's only so much uh, social engineering that a community land trust can engage in. At some point, you step back and you let it happen. You know, you let people who live on the land and are, you know, they build their own community. And we try to stay out of the way. One of the issues we have in Australia is that in this sort of post-manufacturing uh, era, the big industry that's replaced manufacturing has been housing construction. So uh, I passed my old neighbourhood of Footscray yesterday and there were signs out, uh, posters, protest posters saying flat out and trying to uh, raise concerns about uh, this overdevelopment that seems to be storming down the pipeline. So uh, I wonder how we can communicate the difference to neighbours that CLTs are communities and, and not just another development. Well, I mean, we face, you know, what we call NIMBYs uh, as well as you do, you know, not in my backyard. And, you know, there are people in any neighborhoods, almost any area that don't want any more development. And in particular, they don't want development that's going to bring you know, those kind of people into their midst. And those kind of people are anyone who is different than they are. So, you know, there's no panacea here with the community land trust. We face opposition to some of the work that that we do as well. I think, however, because the community land trust is first and foremost a community organizing entity rather than a housing development construction entity, what we try to do is to involve the people in a neighborhood where we're going to site a new project and involve them in our membership. We try, you know, we do door knocking. So, you know, we do the hard work of the door to door organizing to let people know this is what we're building. This is who's coming to your community. And by the way, it's not us and them. If you want to join the organization, there's an open door for you. There's an open door as long as you're not raising up racist barriers or classes barriers to the, the kind of access to land and housing that we're trying to create. So as uh, this rampant uh, change is, is thrust upon so many global cities around uh, the world, 
there's a pressure on public housing and it seems under this neoliberal model that public housing has been uh, removed as a policy priority and from that uh, there's a huge vacuum and uh, community land trusts seem like a potential ally there to fill that space but uh, I just wonder John uh, you know 1980 Burlington uh, the Champlain Community Land Trust got its original seed funding from Bernie Sanders and it has 2,300-odd properties under its management now. But uh, here in uh, Victoria, I think we need 3,300 new public houses a year to keep up with the demand at the moment. <laughs> so why haven't CLTs grown faster? What, what do you think is uh, the tension there when you've stated earlier that you win the economics case uh, you do good for um, the long-term resilience of that community. Uh, it seems to be a lot of positives, but it hasn't grown uh, at the sort of rate you would kind of expect. No, I'm asked that question all the time. If this is such a great idea, why isn't everybody doing it? You know, if this is uh, such an effective model of blending, you know, community ownership of the land with, private ownership of the of the housing that would seem like a natural hybrid that would uh you know who would be against that well the the problem is i, I think our, our two biggest barriers to growth have you know probably to no surprise to you have been money and ideology and you know the problem with money is that you need equity in order to take the land off the market to put it into the land trust portfolio and you need you know debt you need financing mortgage financing in order to construct and to uh, to sell uh, the housing once you've built it so you know in many communities it's been an uphill battle to convince local officials that tend to be the gatekeepers you know public you know, officials that work for cities are really the gatekeepers of most of the federal, state, and local money. It's been an uphill battle at times to convince them to invest their money in a nonprofit organization, an NGO, that is going to use that money to take land off the market and put it into our portfolio. So, you know, a place like Burlington it wasn't hard to convince the city government because Bernie Sanders was the mayor. And uh, you had a progressive administration that made a decision that, uh, you know, in the early 1980s that all of the public investment in affordable housing from that point on was going to go into housing that would remain perpetually affordable. We would no longer allow it to just be privatized and pocketed and removed from our our uh, our project. So money is the big barrier. But I think, you know, kind of overlay the difficulties of trying to get the money is ideology. You know, we still treat land and housing in the United States as commodities to be bought and sold. Um, you know, there was a 19th century political economist in the United States, Thorsten Veblen, uh, who wrote that speculation, not baseball, is our national pastime. That speculation is the great American game. 
everyone wants to be a land speculator. Well, community land trusts are removing both land and housing from the speculative market. So that goes against the grain of a lot of public policy and a lot of private endeavor. So at times it's a hard sell. Listeners, you're on 3CR's Renegade Economist, and this week we're very happy to have John Emmius Davis with us here on the Renegade Economist. He runs BurlingtonAssociates.com. Check out BurlingtonAssociates.com. They've got an incredible resources page there on that website. So uh, dig in and learn from the best. All right, John, so... uh, yeah, we're talking about some of those challenges of CLTs kicking into gear and uh, over, you know, 40, 50 years been a long time. Uh, now we have this growth of ethical super coming through. We also have this uh, phenomenon of the locked out generations, all of these students uh, coming through university with massive debts, especially in America, uh, you know, owing what was once the cost of a house. What sort of movement is happening in those spaces to uh, use ethical finance, ethical superannuation to uh, invest in uh, some sort of housing? Because you'd think that if there is going to be growth for CLTs, it's in that 25 to 35 type of age group where young people have so much energy. You know, there's always that classic statement that anyone uh, below 30 is a socialist, anyone above 30 is a capitalist. Well, how do we help those youngsters recognise that uh, recycling these land rents is uh, the best thing possible for society? Well, I think it's a matter of access. I mean, you're exactly right that young people are being priced out of the market um, it's difficult for them to rent. It's almost impossible for them to to buy a uh, a house in the United States. So what we try to do with the Community Land Trust is multiply the forms of tenure that are in our portfolio. So we don't just do single-family detached houses in the Community Land Trust. You know, we do a lot of that. You know, it's a resale-restricted house on land that you lease from the CLT. Right away, you know, you've taken the cost of the land out of the deal, so you're only buying the house. But even then, we discovered that, you know, you cannot bring affordability down low enough for many, many people. So, you know, in addition to doing single-family detached houses, we will do duplexes. We will do condominiums, what the uh, folks in England call strata. We do limited equity housing cooperatives on CLT land. And we do a lot of rental housing on CLT land. So we try to create a diverse portfolio all within the community land trust so that people at different income points, different income brackets, different points in their their life and their savings can get into housing in that type of tenure of housing. And then once they're inside um, our system, we find that people 
have mobility from one form of housing to another. So we have folks that start out here in the Champlain Housing Trust, start out with us as renters. And then they become, uh, you know, they buy a share at a co-op. And then they be, you know, move into a condominium. They may move out of a condominium into a CLP home. And they move the other way too, you know, for home ownership is not for everyone. So we have homeowners, either single family homeowners or condo owners who decide, you know, I'd rather be in a co-op or I'd rather be a renter. So we try to create access and security at each rung on the housing tenure ladder, but we also encourage and allow people to move from one rung on the ladder to another. One of the many things for people to get their head around are the different uh, economic formulas related to uh, a CLT, and there's a whole raft of them from uh, limiting the resale price to some 70% of the median uh, priced home in the area to uh, limiting it to 30% of uh, someone's wage over a few years. So... uh, in Australia and I know around the world, uh, there's a number of people who have come to, you know, been attracted to the shiny lights of the CLT movement. It sounds so good, uh, but they don't trust the market and uh, they want to make their CLT a community rental only so that uh, there is not r- that uh, traditional separation of land and improvements. Uh, For me, one of the biggest dangers of uh, setting up a CLT is uh, the danger of too much debt. And uh, from Ebenezer Howard's uh, New City movement uh, through to, you know, what I'm seeing with these rent-only CLT models, it puts a lot more pressure on the, the CLT startup to raise incredible amounts of money to fund not only the land but the buildings as well. And uh, for me, separating those two uh, and, and putting a little bit of that risk on the new, uh, new residents is a fair way. Well, it seems to give the CLT a better chance of surviving, if you ask me. Yes, I, I would agree with you entirely. I think uh, some of the early community land trusts in the United States, um, some of the ones that failed, did so because they had loaded so much debt onto the land. That then when they got around to the point of trying to develop that land, um, they had to borrow more money. So I would agree with you. The, the burden of debt is what sank them. So this is why today most community land trusts in the U.S. try as hard as they can to move land into their portfolio that's debt-free. Put the debt on the buildings. I think that at the same time that you know we try to focus on using any equity we can raise to move the land into our portfolio, we also try to find debt that is socially responsible that is not burdensome. Mm. So, you know, we do work with you know with local banks to uh, to borrow money, but we've also had the benefit here and there of um, of pension funds, you know, public employee pension funds that have invested their money at a reasonable rate yeah. in a community land trust to help do development. We've had social investors that, you know, have loaned money to the community land trust at a below market favorable uh, rate of interest. 
you know, we have people who donate land or do what we call bargain sales in the United States, where, you know, they uh, sell the land to the land trust at, you know, half of its market value and then take the other half as a tax deduction. You know, and we partner with other nonprofit organizations that bring money of their own to the deal. You know, if they, if we partner with an organization like Habitat for Humanity that is raising, you know, money from religious organizations and private donors to do, you know, to offer, you know, zero percent mortgage for you know, homeowners on CLT land, then we have the benefit of that. So how do we round off this conversation, John? Been uh, fantastic to uh, sit on your shoulders and, and peer into uh, the incredible history of this movement. Uh, what do you think Ralph Bosodi would say today if he saw the state of CLTs uh, versus the wider housing market pressures? <laughs> Oh, well, uh, you know, Ralph Borsodi uh, had his roots in the uh, uh, the theories of Henry George. And, uh, you know, he was so opposed to the idea of the commodification of land. Uh, Borsodi refused to even refer to land as property. He always referred to land as trustedy. And, um, you know, I think he would be happy to see that as much land uh, has gone into trustity uh, as it has. I think he would probably be dismayed that there are only 250 community land trusts instead of, you know, 2,500 community land trusts. I think uh, he would probably scratch his head and say, this is a wonderful idea. Why aren't more people doing it? So I think that people took his idea a lot further than he ever imagined. And at the same time, I think that they narrowed it in ways that he might not have approved. You know, I think one of the things that we are doing wrong today in the United States, you know, I gave you a list of here are the things we've done right. But one of the things I think that we overlook in the CLT movement today is that each one of the three components of the model are mutually reinforcing. Right. If you look at our distinctive approach to ownership and to empowerment and to stewardship, you can tinker with any one of those components. You can have different resale formulas. You can have different relationships with your community. But if you start diluting or removing one of those components, it's no longer a community land trust. It's the combination of those three elements that gives the CLT its identity, its vitality, and its effectiveness. And there's a certain temptation, I think, of people trying to start a community land trust to say, you know, this is so difficult to do. You want to involve the community. You want to remove land from the speculative market. You want to be a durable steward standing behind the deal forever. This is hard work. So there's a certain temptation to lop off the more difficult elements. 
And once you start diluting or deleting some of those elements, then you start to undermine the power and the appeal of the model. So I think there's always a temptation to go the easy way. This is slow development. This is a not an easy way to do development, but I think it's a durable, it's a sustainable approach to community development and affordable housing. Well, John Amias Davis, thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. Uh, that was an absolute highlight. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks a million for listening. Check the show notes on earthsharing.org.au.